Welcome to the Archive Room Podcast. Fastamai, Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Well, there's something very fishy going on in the archive room this week, and here's a musical clue from the Manning Folk. Offer the log and let her run before the wind and tide. The gannets plunge, the gulls keep watch, the heron shoulders wide. All the heron boys, the heron, all the heron boys for me. Red or kippered, fresh or pickled, all the herons, the king of the sea. Country head in the apple point will soon be left behind. Our fleshy face, our west by west, our many friends we'll find. All the hand boys, the hand, all the hand boys for me. Red or kippered, fresh or pickled, all the hands, the king of the sea. The man in folk and king of the sea. After the recent sad news that we are to lose Moore's Smokehouse, the last traditional Manx kipper yard, smoking the same way since it was built in 1882. I thought we'd spend some time in Peel to listen to a few stories about fishing for herrings, producing kippers and their place in island life over the years. Peter Caniper may surprise you with his thoughts about kipper curing and Callan Hudson tells John Kenyuk how herrings came to Dorby. But our main storyteller this week is Eddie Lease, a man who'll be remembered for the many ways in which he served the island and the community of Peel, but probably most particularly as the founder, in 1984, of a museum devoted to Peel history, which became known as the Lease Museum. Eddie Lease was born in Peel in 1917 and was in his early 80s when David Collister recorded this conversation. Before they got on to the subject of fishing, David was interested to learn a bit about Eddie's childhood. You were born here in Peel, were you? Yes, in Ory Lane. The house is still in existence. I was born in Ory Lane, but after a couple of years, my mother was having another baby, and I think it was a something which happened quite regularly in those days. My mother's mother took me while my mother was having the other baby. Mm. And the result was that I never went back. I stayed with my grandparents for the rest of my life in Peel. So was it a happy childhood then? Oh yes, oh yes, I couldn't have wished for a better childhood. There was so much to do in those days. It was a case of not knowing what you could do. There were so many things to do. What I can remember of the very, very early days is the fact that the sea, the shore road, the harbour, the breakwater, you know, that was the life of the young boys particularly, but also the girls. And for the adults as well, it's such a pity, in my estimation anyway, that the sandstone wall along the front of Peel was ever taken away because that was the meeting house. It was a fine day. Go down there. The fishermen, if they weren't working at their boats, were there chatting away all along, sitting on the wall, The women were down there sitting on the wall, knitting away for all they were worth, and the kiddies were down on the beach, 
doing all sorts of things. There was a game which we used to play. Nobody seems to recall this game. We levelled out a part of the sand and we had a penknife and we went through a routine with this penknife, flicking it from one part of the beach onto the flat part, knocking it off our finger, off our forehead, off our nose and so on. If you missed, the next chap took the turn and I'm quite certain this was called Flick the Knife. I've never seen it performed since those days. No? Never. I suppose it was dangerous, really. They'd uh. say, oh, we enjoyed ourselves for hours doing that. Another great attraction was the fact we would spend, oh, quarter of an hour, 20 minutes searching amongst the stones down near the sea's edge, and we would get one, a flat one, as near as possible the shape of a boat. We'd take some of the wet sand, and we would build up on top of the stone so that we had a boat. We would look for some sticks, they became the masts, a piece of cork or a piece of wood, and you had the cabins or the boathouse and everything on, and then we went to the fishing. We often built a little harbour there, and then we'd push this boat along the sand, and we'd probably go, oh, a hundred yards or more in amongst the seaweed, and then collect some of the seaweed and things and put it on the deck, and so this was our catch of herring, and then bring them back again into the harbour and talk about where we'd been, what we'd caught, and so on. Spend hours doing that. Then used to make a, a little fishing line. Well, you could buy them. The shop up the Ramsey Road here in Peel, next to Rick Wakeman's music shop. A lady ran that. I don't know her name, but she was always called Auntie Bowden. It was a toy shop, and she used to have in the window there, you could buy them for a penny, a little fishing line with a hook. And we'd go off to the rocks over the promenade there, fishing for bullheads, buckies as we used to call them. Mm. Have a jam jar sometimes, but more often than not we let them go again. Spend a lot of time with the rowing boats down there. There were three or four who had these fleets of fishing boats. Reggie Cannon was yeah. one of them, you remember. Oh yes, yes. The rowing boats mostly for holidaymakers. That, that's yeah. right, these rowing boats. Oh yes, they were posh boats. They had backrests and everything. Oh yes. We looked after them. We enjoyed helping these rather elderly men or old men in our estimation to run these because the boats were down at the end of the groin down there. And uh, the visitors would come, and the, the owners usually had a hut up on the quay, and they would say they wanted to go out in a rowing boat. Mm. The old man would shout to us, bring the Mary in, or the Emily in, or something like this. Yeah. And we would unfasten it from the collection. Gigs, we called them. Not mm. rowing boats, we called them gigs. And uh, you didn't need to row them, you just manoeuvred them so that they came up to the steps there. And uh, the visitor might say... Uh, they wanted to go fishing and so on. And they were provided with a bucket with the bait in and a fishing line, not a rod, mm. a line. If there was a lady, cushions for the lady to sit on and everything. And the oars, uh, given the oars and away off they would go. And we, we would spend hours a day there. It, it was marvellous, you know. The sandstone wall there was going all the way over to the Peel Sailing Club place and uh, the horse-drawn coaches came in from Douglas mm. and they parked along there. There were a lot of eating houses along there now. They went in for their meal and yeah, so on. Yeah. When they came out and ready to go, we used to collect on the shore side of the wall and we used to sing our songs. We'd stand on our heads and do all sorts yeah. of things. And they would throw us money and so on. You know, we had a cinema in Peel. 
1920s. Saturday afternoon, pay a penny and go down to the hut which stood where Dickie Crane now has his car showroom. This was run by... Did did you ever hear of Howard Hughes? What, the American Howard Hughes? No, no, no. this was the Peel Howard Hughes. <laughs> no, no. He wasn't, he wasn't a Peel man, but he and his wife, they were a bit eccentric. They walked around the streets of Peel all dressed up as if they were taking part in a film, you know. Yes. And I believe that they had been on the stage at one time. But Howard Hughes, he used to have a little projector in his shed out there at the back. He used to have these old cowboy films, black and white, you know. Mm. Absolutely marvellous it was. And also, he used to have pierrots in the summer for mm. the visitors uh, on the sand just in front of the Marine Hotel there. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we've got a photograph down in the museum of the stage there, everything, chairs and everything out in the front, as popular as could be, you know. He was absolutely marvellous, was Howard Hughes, and he ran this little picture place down there for us. Over the company relay, the sun's bright signal shines. Tis time to haul our glitter train and ship our loaded lines. All the hand boys, the hand, all the hand boys for me. What do you remember of, of, of fishing days here? Fishing days, fishing days. Originally, if we go back to that hundred years, they were crofters because, as you know, they fished in the summer. Yeah. Uh, they left their farms and came and fished in the summer and they went back to their farms in the winter. And then Robert Corn came up with the idea of going fishing for mackerel at Kinsale. Mm. And so we find that they followed the herring. Then when the herring were finished, they were off to Kinsale. And there they fished for mackerel. The size of the boats changed. Younger men came and then they realised, you know, that it wasn't going to be just a seasonal a seasonal job, that they could do fishing for herring in the Isle of Man in the summer. In the autumn time, they could go to Kinsale for mackerel. And by that time, the herring had got up somewhere around northern Scotland, up the Shetlands or mm. somewhere. They could go off there again. And, and so... It became an all-the-year-round job. They, yeah. be, they became, one might say, professional fishermen. Yes. Yes, you have to go back a while to to remember what Peel was like in the days when the harbour was absolutely chock-a-block with boats, mm. Scottish boats, Irish boats, Cornish boats, yes, and Manx boats too. Those days, sadly, they've gone, they won't come back again. In my days, the harbour was still full of fishing boats, you know, so what it must have been in those days, well, we read in books, it was quite usual, 2,000 boys and men from Peel going off to Kinsale for the mackerel fishing, the old saying, no fish, no wedding. You know, that's what they used to say if they didn't have a good season. They had to get the money. They had to get the money. But in my days, it seemed to be thriving, and as you know, the herring season would start up in the North Sea, uh, then the herring came round and into the Irish Sea and off the coast of the Isle of Man. And the herring were followed by the boats, 
and the boats were followed by the gutter girls, as we called them. You called them gutter girls because they gutted herring. They gutted the herring. Most of them were northeasterners. You know, they had the good old Geordie brogue with them. So did they come over year after year to do oh, it? Oh yes, they followed the boats. The same girls would come year after year after yeah. year. Few new ones, perhaps, yeah. and some of the older. Some of them were quite old, you know. Yeah. But you ought to have seen them gutting it. They had. All their fingers bandaged. That yeah. wasn't because they were injured, but that was to prevent injury. When they got the herring, there were gutting stations along the breakwater, down the side of the castle, just before you come to uh, Fenella Beach, uh, over in what is called the fish yard now. There were umpteen places, open air work, rain or, or, or shine, yeah. they were busy at it. Buyers would go down in the morning to the sale, which took place quite early. Well, as soon as the boats came in, they'd be off out. And, of course, some of the boats were contracted to various firms. The gutter girls would get to work. They got the herring, put salt in the base of the barrel, put a layer of herring in, more salt herring, more salt herring, more salt herring, so on. Put a lid on it. They'd leave it for a while and the salt would turn to pickle. And after a little while, you'd have the fellows who wanted to buy the herrings come along, and there, were, there was a bung in the barrel, and they'd let most of the pickle out. Uh, they, they didn't want the pickle. And, sometime, and I've seen them do this. They would, to see if the herring were all right, they'd take one up and eat it as it was raw. They were exported to Germany, to Russia, to Norway, all over the world. Yes. Where would they stay, these girls, then? Locally, a pal of mine, Stephen Cobbin, he's still alive, he lives down in Castletown. He had what is called the Merchant's House, or his parents had, down Castle Street, which has just been done up. It's a big house. Up in the attic, they would take them in. All they wanted was a bed. I don't know, yes, somewhere to eat, I suppose. A lot of people didn't like them. They came in Wellington Boots. All oil skin aprons yes. and bibs. And smelling of fish. And smelling of <laughs> fish, which you could never get rid of. You must have lived with the smell of fish, didn't Oh, you? yes, oh, yes. Sometimes the whole appeal. There were so many herrings caught in those days that they, they built the factory up in the, uh, in the fish yard mm. and the surplus herring was taken up there and it was put through the machinery for manure. So there was far too many herring. There were far too many herring, and sometimes even the factory couldn't cope with it, and peel stank, literally stank, if it was fine weather, such as we've been having for a day or two, because the herrings were still there waiting to be processed. Uh, No processing, they hadn't hadn't room for them. Used to be terrible sometimes. Moors, for instance, up there. Now we're going on to kippers now. Yes, the herring were done just the same for the kippers, except there was a different process, you know, they were split. Yeah. And then put in brine, soaked for a little while, and then hung up on the tenters and put in the smokehouse and so on. Monday was a day off, usually, because the boats didn't go out on a Sunday. Mm. Monday was a day off for the gutter girls, and they didn't turn in, except that it was part of their contract that they would go in on a Monday and do so many boxes for export. Wooden boxes, uh, all the wood came already cut to size for you. And Stephen and I used to go along and, you know, a wet Monday afternoon, we would make kipper boxes for export. Just nail them up, would you? Just nail them up. Yeah. 
ten, ten of nails and a hammer and these yeah. little, uh, these pieces of wood all there, you could go through them pretty quickly. Uh, sixpence a hundred we used to get. Sixpence a hundred? Sixpence a hundred. And of course in those days, and you can still see the door, first thing in the morning after the Kipper girls had packed the herring, the first train would stop up by the Kipper house on the railway line and there's a door there and they could pass out the boxes straight onto the train. Yes. And then it would go after Douglas on the boat uh. and uh, all, all over the place. It was amazing, the activity in those days. How important was fish in the diet of the population of this city here, then? Pretty important. I can remember there were quite a number of men in Peel. They had little handcarts, and they bought, oh, I suppose, two or three thousand herring. Sometimes it would be herring that was left over that they, nobody wanted, you know, mm-hmm. they'd get them quite cheaply. They went round the town, pushing their handcarts. They went out in the country, pushing their handcarts and selling their herring. What, 20 for a shilling? 30 for a shilling? Mm-hmm. You know? But round about the time, it would be September, end of August, September, most of the people in Peel got in what they called their stock. They would buy herring from these peddlers, as they were. They would buy the herring. Uh, most homes had a crock, a small one, or, yeah. a, or a big one. Stone a, crock, yeah. A stone crock. Yeah. And their stock of herring, because there would be no fresh ones available for a while, they were stocking up for the winter. I can remember going down to Johnny Garrett's in Peel, a little shop there, to buy a kitchen of salt. The dictionary says that it's equivalent to two quarts. Now, I always think of quarts as measuring liquid measures. But, yeah. but anyway, getting a kitchen of salt for my grandmother, and uh, she used this to make her stock. Salting the herring down. Salting the herring down, exactly in the same way as the gutter girls did theirs, yeah. you know. Layer of salt, layer yeah. of herring, layer of salt, layer of herring. And I can remember so very, very clearly that my grandfather, who worked on the highway board, every morning during the winter, a couple of salt herring roasted in front of the fire. He had a little roaster about that long, which fastened onto the front bars of the grate, an open grate in mm-hmm. that there, and a couple of herring in there. Breakfast every day, a couple of herring, and a cupful of cold tea. Cullen Hudson well remembered the herrings being sold in his native Dorby and shared his memories with John Kenyuk. But it's Eddie Lease who, as you'll hear in a moment, has the strongest memories of a very Manx meal. There was always carts coming out selling herring anyway, uh, fresh herring. Who would be the, um, the salesman? Billy Filet. I think actually coming out Dolby, I think he was the only one. He was a character. Deaf as opposed. Deaf as opposed. And you get 24 herring for a shilling. 24 for a shilling. A halfpenny each. And if you distracted them, you got half as many again. <laughs> see, uh, you got about 35 for a shilling. Yeah, um, make them lose count, you see. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll be salted down. Mm. In a in a crock? Well, uh, yes. And that, of course, gave rise to the, the spuds and herring that well, many right. people often quote, but few people maybe experienced. Exactly, or, yes, yeah. yes. They're very good too, they were. Oh, they were indeed. Mm. Spuds and herring where the potatoes and the herring 
were boiled in the same pot. I can remember partaking of a meal like this where my mother had an old table, the old kind of farmhouse table that they had, a lovely flat wooden top, scrubbed down, spotlessly clean, and when the potatoes and the herring were thought to have been cooked sufficiently, the pot was brought in, and after the water had been drained off, the whole lot just emptied onto the middle of the table, no plates, just help yourself, the potatoes and the herring just straight onto the, the table. Peter Canniper joined Devereaux's, the family-owned kipper-curing business, as a 13-year-old delivering fish and kippers on a pushbike to most of the hotels along Douglas Promenade. In 1972, having worked there for many years, Peter bought the factory and kipper shop from the Devereaux family and significantly expanded the business. Here, Peter Canniper gives David Collister a report for a mandate programme in July 1989. Well, strangely enough, the quality this year has been far better than what it has been in previous years. I mean, June is a very, very awkward month, really, because when they start, there is such an amount of small herring about, and then suddenly they come on, and in a matter of a week, you, you find the quality kind of improves. They kind of find better quality. They look a little bit further afield, or north of the island, or south of the island, and then they seem to get better quality. But this year now, the quality has been quite exceptional for the time of year. Any local boats out? Uh, well, there's a couple of local boats having a dabble at the moment. They're not having a lot of success at the moment, but mind you, they haven't got the sophisticated gear that these big Northern Irish trawlers have got. Well, how do you know then, when you're smoking these under the new modern systems, that you've actually got a good kipper? Can you tell by looking at it? Well, of course, you've got to have the quality of the herring first. When you see the herring, when you look at the condition of the herring, then you know what you can turn that herring into. If it's a good fat herring, the oil content is, is right, which you can more or less tell once you're used to handling the herring all the time, the oil content of it. You know that you can turn that into a first-class kipper. Is tasting involved, then? Well, I eat kippers all the time, and I have a kipper off every smoke. Goodness gracious, hang on, how many, is, how many is that, then, a day? Well, I think it's quite a considerable amount. I think if I told you, you wouldn't believe me anyway. Uh, go on, tell me. Well, I eat, on average, at least 24 kippers every day. No. I, I can promise you, you can ask any of my staff. I you eat, mean you take a small bite and... I eat a whole kipper after every smoke. Not cooked, just straight off the rack. I mean, you don't have to cook Manx kippers, really. Because people, yes, people eat them as they are, because they come cooked in their packets anyway, in fact, when they're smoked, don't they? Well, if you look at smoked salmon, well, people eat a lot of smoked salmon. Now, smoked salmon is not half as cured as a kipper. The only way for a kipper for me, though, is to put it onto the grill and, and warm it up and have it with bread and butter. Now, that, I, I think that's the only real way to eat a kipper. Well, we could go on about this and go on about this. I mean, there's so many ways of doing kippers. I mean, I had a list from the, from the United States what they do with them, and I just couldn't believe it's possible, the things that they do with them. But another thing now, too, is we find now that people are using kippers in barbecues. So easy to do. Some people, they just have a little fire and they just roll them in a piece of tin foil. It doesn't matter what the fire's made of and you can throw them on the fire and five or six minutes they're cooked. And it's just so simple. How many kippers have you had today then? 
Well, at the moment, about 15, but uh, I've got the night to go yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but when talking about kippers, I mean, I do one or two little fancy things with the odd kipper too, as well. I mean, especially with the kipper fillets. I've done those in tea maria and olive oil. Now, that is a mixture of tea maria, olive oil, diluted with lemonade. Now, just get them to a certain temperature, and this is brushed into them. Now, of course, these, we haven't sold these on the market to anybody, but for a few friends like who like them like that, they're really good. And I think in the near future, I'm going to have to do a few more like this because we find that people are saying, can you do us a few more of those? But it's not so easy because you have to do them in such large quantities. Mm. And I think with the amount of all that Maria and things like that going through the kiln, I think we'd be legless for the end of the night, you know. <laughs> Kippers smoked in Tia Maria? I think I'd probably agree with David that you can't go wrong with kippers and a couple of slices of bread and butter and a nice cup of tea. And with that, it's time to close the archive room door for this week. With thanks to David Collister and John Kenyuk, who left us those timeless conversations with Eddie Leese, Callan Hudson and Peter Canepa. And my thanks to our archivist, Tim Price, who finds the stories he hopes you'll enjoy. If you've missed any earlier programmes or you'd like to recommend them to a friend, all our Archive Room programmes are available as podcasts at manxradio.com and via your usual podcast provider. I do hope that you can join me again next week. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company in the Archive Room, whilst I leave the last word to our mystery man. Or is he maybe not such a mystery to you? Until then, look after yourselves and goodbye, bye, 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 bye,